I was listening recently to a panel discussion with several pastors, and one of the conversations that most caught my attention were the words of a man named John Piper that some of you have listened to and read. He said that he and his wife recently celebrated their 40th anniversary. And I like the celebration of longevity and that sort of fidelity and loyalty. And he spoke of their practice, which was a practice that was common to me because Kathy and I, who just celebrated our 16th anniversary, far less years than that. But we've been dating and are married for 62 years. That's a joke. So, he said, we date on Mondays... Noel and I, we date. We go to Eddington's. He lives in Minneapolis, if some of you are from there. We go to Eddington's because I like the breadsticks there, and she, well, she likes the soup. And while we're there, we have, it occurs to me now, become experts. Phenomenal experts at analyzing our children's problems. And our problems. And everybody's problems. And so we do this. We discuss why people are the way they are. What they need to do. What's wrong with everybody. And then we finish our breadsticks and our soup and our meal at Eddington's. And we come away and we feel horrible. We feel horrible. And I think this is my, this is my day off. This is supposed to be life-giving. This is supposed to be renewing. And we do this thing that we've become experts at where we just simply feel terrible. And his solution was particularly interesting to me because I have recognized the same tendency in myself, maybe you do. His solution was that he realized as he opened up the Scriptures in a passage something like what we just read in Psalm 118 that The Lord has done mighty things. He started to recognize that he was, to use another person's words, practicing the presence only of sorrow and debilitation and deprivation. And he was failing to good news his wife. He said, I realized with great sorrow and said to my wife upon realizing this, for 40 years... In the pulpit, I have preached good news. And then at Eddington's, I have not. I have rehearsed bad news. I have examined all of the decay and the termite damage of human existence in our children and us and in the world. And I'm sorry. My calling is to good news my children and to good news my wife the same way I good news my congregation and I thought what a compelling way to speak of the Christian life on a day when we celebrate resurrection because as the children who have been in my communicants class know and maybe they can help me even now what does gospel mean children someone say it Bennett good news thank you sir Gospel, a word that gets kicked around, a word that Paul 
speaks of here rehearses for an over-spiritualizing people, a people who don't respect his authority, they don't think he's all that fancy, he don't talk good enough to get a hearing. He says, brothers, I want to remind you of the good news that I preach to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this good news, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And what I think about for us at the end of this Lenten season, where we have been looking at acceptable, with air quotes around them, sins, the respectable sins that assail all of us, that keep us away from God, that keep us on the defense with God, but they get us on in the world so no one ever calls us on them. We've been looking at these sins, and today, on a resurrection day, it occurred to me that the best thing to say to all of you is what I need to regularly say to myself is, now step away from the mirror. Have you ever lived in front of a mirror? Some of you do it now. Some of you did it when you were adolescents. You didn't, could not walk past the mirror that would not hold you magnetically to it. You had to examine your face, your pores, your hair, your very air. You had to look yourself over. It's an affliction that meets all of us, sometimes literally and always figuratively. We're a people who can get stuck on us. A people who can think a lot about us and then compound it. This narcissism that we have with our spiritual appetite. You who have become earnest believers in Jesus, you know it can happen so easy. You begin to make the focus of your faith how you feel about your faith. Am I loving Him enough? Am I serving Him enough? Do I feel sufficiently sorrowful at the sorrowful things? Do I feel sufficiently exultant at the things that warrant exulting? And you get to where you're peering down into what becomes a labyrinth of yourself. And you go down this inner man maze maze and you go left and you go right and you are stuck on you. And when the Apostle Paul talks about the good newsing that we can do for the world, the good newsing that he has done for the Corinthian church that we get to overhear today, the good newsing that a person can do for themselves, for their family, for their church, and for one another, the first thing that he gives us is this assurance that the object of your faith is far, far, far more important than the subject of the faith. Do you know one thing that's really interesting about this? Paul says this, what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. Here's what's critical. Here's the bottom line of our Christianity. Note there will be no personal pronouns. Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. 
according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter. And then he appeared to the twelve. And then after that, he appeared to more than 500 witnesses, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. First person personal pronouns omitted because what the apostle wants everyone to know, what he wants to remind these Corinthians of, and what we need to be reminded of as of first importance today, is that the good newsing that is to characterize our lives means that what we trust in is a lot more important than ourselves. It's far better to have a weak faith in a strong Savior than to have a strong faith in a weak one. And the gospel, this good newsing, is all about pointing you outward. See, Paul says Christ is risen, and that has significance. It's not just some metaphorical thing that he's saying. It's not some figurative thing like a poet might say that the daffodils are full in bloom like Christ has risen in my heart or some inane thing like that. Christ might rise in your heart, but that's not what the resurrection's about. The resurrection is about a dead man that God raised from the dead, and it's significant. Our boys, our youngest, has been reading Junie B. Jones, which is a magnificent set of stories, and they tell me this great line. They were talking about figurative language in this story. And Lucille says this, My grandmother calls my dad a couch potato. But he's not really a couch potato. He's just a big, fat, lazy bum. (laughs) She understands. Grandmother's using figurative language there to talk about something actual. Well, Paul's not even using figurative language. He's talking about something actual. Because he wants you to know that when you trust in Jesus, no matter what you happen to think or feel on the inside about it at the moment, and that can change drastically throughout the course of a day, throughout the course of a week, throughout the course of a month, throughout the course of a quarter, a year, a decade, that's going to change drastically, up and down and up and down, but you know what will not change? The reality that early Sunday morning, A blood-crusted eye opened and a hand that had been marred and destroyed by spikes began to move. And that a man who said, I will die for sinners got up from the grave and God vindicated him. And people who were formerly forlorn about this a whole host of disciples who were dejected because the Messiah we thought was going to kick some tail and instead got his lunch eaten. Instead had his tail kicked. And they had no understanding, no possibility in their mind that he would actually be raised from the dead. But he did. And they saw him. And one of the chief requirements for getting to be a replacement apostle after Judas did his dastardly deed of betrayal was who is a witness to the resurrection? Who saw him? Who knows the things that he was teaching and who saw him? Because 
Paul's big argument here, and it's very valid for us today, especially on the days when you feel the funk the deepest. On the days when darkness covers over your understanding and your capacity to trust, it's so important and so helpful to go back to this reality that this man got up from the dead. These apostles, they said, this means something. It converted them from cowardly, shivering, hiding out people to bold, daring, offering up their lives kind of people because when they saw Him, they realized that something substantial had happened, that something had forever changed. They talk in terms like the old Adam who sinned and his sin spread like a virus to all humanity. Now, there's a new Adam. And where do Adams appear? A-D-A-M-S's, not A-T-O-M-S's. Where do new Adams appear? On new creations. The Bible's insistence is that when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was the start of a new world. He's the first fruits, we're told. Some of you folks are gardeners. You know, if you got a big old juicy tomato comes out first, there's going to be a whole lot of other tomatoes coming after them. And Paul's insistence is this resurrection, this new world that we're looking forward to, the new heavens and the new earth, it started 2,000 years ago. What a gift! To look away from yourself and to realize that you stand. He says, this is the gospel upon which you have taken your stand. You stand not on a wobbly, moldy, soon to drop out because it's rotted floor. You stand on sturdy concrete of actuality. Jesus got up from the dead. And you know what? All of the stuff of your salvation, it all happened outside of you. It all happened 2,000 years before you. So you know what that means? You can't mess it up. You can't mess it up because you didn't make it happen. Some of you need to know deep down inside that nothing deep down inside is going to fix you or save you. Your salvation rests outside by the resurrected man. G.K. Chesterton said, Man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. And one of the things that the apostles were keen on saying is we are speaking the truth. These are not cleverly invented stories. In fact, the resurrection is why we believe the Bible. Because these guys saw the resurrection. They said, we're not telling you stuff that we pulled out of our hat. We weren't smoking weird things and then invented some cool stories that we thought would inspire people to waste their Sundays when it's pretty outside. That's not what we're up to. We saw something cataclysmic that we think changed the world. And we want you to frame your life to that reality. Doubt yourself. But do not doubt the truth. And the apostles want to say, this is truth. We... We saw the nails where the hand we saw the hands where the nails had been. So Jesus could say when they saw it, stop doubting and believe. Lean into this reality. Let it change the way you think. Because this is the reality. No matter what else you see, a new world has begun.
Last year during the tornadoes, it was about this time of year. You know, this area got hard hit. Not far from our house got a great deal of damage. And I'm a person who has... It's not rational. It doesn't make any sense. I don't understand it myself. And I realize I'm in a vast minority. I have a great disdain for a preoccupation with the weather. I'm sorry. I don't understand it. I, can't, I don't ever watch a news report. I never know if it's going to be sunny or rainy or anything. I don't know. I don't care. I get mad at David Glenn and Paul Barris. And when these storms were coming, I think, cynically, I'm judging them. Oh, they're just getting all lathered up. They love to get people nervous. They love to talk about things falling out of the sky and floods coming and people being swept up. It's so terrible. They're wonderful men, kind men, doing good things. I'm wrong. Well, so anyways, this is the diseased attitude towards weather that I bring into that one fateful day. We're at our house. We're listening to emergency weather reports. Kathy, being a sane and protective and loving woman, is saying we've got to get to the bathroom. And I'm inside myself going, this is ridiculous. (laughs) Almost wanting to just go outside. We should be shooting baskets. (laughs) What do these people know? And one mile from my house, regardless of whether I felt it or not, houses were totally destroyed. Trees that won't be restored in our lifetime were totally felled. An unbelievable amount of damage happened in a swath of earth. And regardless of what I happened to feel about it, it was true. I had to correct my inner life to match it up to the reality. And what the Bible is always saying to you is that there is a reality. Jesus was raised from the dead. A lot of people saw him. That means that he is God's king. That he is actively ruling over all the earth. Even if it isn't apparent at the moment that he's ruling, the apostles thought he is the king. His resurrection means there's a whole lot of other resurrections soon to come and with it a new world and the renewal of all things. Now, the question for us is, will we frame our lives to that reality? As the tornado of God's redemptive activity swirls around us, will we say, I don't feel it, it must not be true? Or will we listen? And open ourselves up to it and say, I'm going to live as if it's true. Because he was dead and then he was raised. The object of your faith is far more important than the subject yourself. Well, the second thing you see here, it won't be as long as the first thing, is that this good newsing that we can do to each other and to the world and for ourselves even, is the good news of forgiveness. Christ died for our sins. And later he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. And when Peter in Acts 10 is preaching about this resurrection, he says, all the prophets, they all agree about this. Everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness for all their sins. Now one, if that's not a big deal to you, it was a really big deal to people in the Bible. My guess is, if it's not a big deal to you, you just haven't thought about it. 
Most people who have worked with the psychologically damaged, with the anxious, the fearful, the self-righteous, the proud, people who aren't growing, people who are addicted, you know what they'll discover time and time and time and time again? Is at the core, there's usually some rift. There's some unforgiveness. Either forgiveness they have not received, or forgiveness they have not offered. See, anytime there's a rupture between you and God, which is what any kind of sin does, it's going to affect all your relationships. And so anytime you have ruptured relationships with other people, it's likely there's something ain't right with you and God too. One famous psychiatrist said, I could release all my psychiatric patients, or 75% of my psychiatric patients, I could release tomorrow if only they could be convinced of forgiveness. Which is to say, if only they could, could be convinced that if God were looking at them in the face and they could touch Him and see Him, and they could see He was wearing a smile and not a frown. They could see that all the horrible things they've done or think they've done, that God has said, you know what? I'll pay. Not you. You're off the hook. If they could hear that, if they could see it, if they could be convinced of it, they would be changed. This is the teaching of the Bible. Peter says if you don't grow, if you're not growing in faith, if you're not growing in knowledge, if you're not growing in adoration and love for the Lord, it means you forgot. You've been forgiven. There's this content of our faith that says outside of us, Jesus, by the will of God, was crushed for our ugliness. That all of our sins have been dropped into the black hole of His forgetting. Now, I'll sometimes hear people say, and I'll read people saying, oh, I, I, I accept God's forgiveness. It's just that I cannot forgive... Fill in the blank. It starts with an M. Myself. 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 And I don't usually correct anybody when they say that because I think I know what they mean. But as I think on it more and more, and as I've read, and as I've experienced life with God, you know what I realize? The problem usually isn't a failure to forgive yourself. I don't know that you have the authority to forgive yourself. That's the problem. The problem usually is that we think we're the solitary instance in the whole planet that's outside of the atonement of Christ for us. Nobody as bad as me who's done what I can do could receive forgiveness for God. That's called pride. That means that you're the exception to the rule of humanity. Don't you see how Christ gets so precious to people? When they realize, you mean all that I've done? When I look in the mirror and I see that I'm at least, as Frederick Beekner said, eight parts chicken, phony, and slob... That God knows that too. And He says, you know what? I'll accept you anyway. All your treason, I'll pay for it. All your failure. All the things you should have done and you didn't. All the things you shouldn't have done and you did. I got it. He died for actual sins and your actual life. If you are not able to receive that, you won't accept who you are. You won't accept God's favor towards you, and you will be engrossed with yourself. 
So if you find yourself constantly thinking about what you've done or not done, whether you've done enough, if you're constantly fearful, constantly anxious, constantly thinking about how someone else has wronged you, there is a very high likelihood that you have failed to receive God's forgiveness. And you failed to offer it. But we are a good newsing people. We are a people who, whether we feel like it or not, can actually lean into this and live as if it's true. Our sins have been carried away and flushed down the divine toilet. That's not in the Bible. But it's like hurling them into the sea. Our sins have been carried away. And you know what that will make? That makes us a good newsing people. There are people in your family, in your next door neighbors, at your workplace. They're addicted. They're running after things. You know why? They're running away from God because they are never going to run towards someone they think they're in Dutch with. They're never going to run towards someone who they think has got the goods on them. And if you carry out the task like the Apostle Paul of being a good newsing person, you can convince others. They don't have to look at themselves. They've been forgiven. Paul Tournier, the great psychiatrist, physician turned care of souls dude, Swiss, he says this, lots of people have asked me secret to my practice of how people get healed, of how people get uh, better. And he says, it's really embarrassing when they come and they come to visit me in Switzerland. It's so embarrassing because the secret of my work is that I accept them. It's not magical. I accept them. And see, you can't accept somebody that you think you're better than. And you will think you're better than people if you haven't stood beneath the work of Christ and known you need forgiveness. But if you recognize, man, yeah, you're bad, but I'm not just eight-tenths, I'm 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent chicken, phony, and slob, but I believe that Jesus died for all the chickens and the phonies and the slobs, including these here surrounding me. You can accept others. You don't have to live by judgment. You can introduce them to the good newsing of Jesus. The object of your faith is far more important than the subject. Good newsing means there's actual, true, real, substantial forgiveness. And lastly, this. The good newsing that we can do reminds us that there is a forever. Christ, if He's not been raised, your faith is futile, it's hopeless, it's worthless. And then those who've fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. If it's only for this life, if it's only for this life, if only it is for this life that we have hope in Christ, we are a pitiable lot. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We've spoken not too long ago about Tripp's term called eternity amnesia. It's affliction. It's an affliction that especially hits prosperous people, I think. People for whom the world is going very well. It's really part of the reason why no matter how much money you've got, no matter how good things are going, that inevitably you're going to get a toothache. 
You're going to get a prognosis you don't want. Something's going to go wrong with one of your kids. Something's going to go wrong with your house. Something's going to go wrong with your body. Something's going to go wrong with the relationship because God is intent on making sure you realize you're in preparation here. This isn't everything. But if you forget that it's everything, if you forget about the resurrection, which means there's a harvest of resurrected bodies living on a new earth where everything sad has become untrue, If you forget that, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be questioning the goodness of God all the time. Because you're going to look around you and the evidences for His goodness are going to be obscured from you. How could God be good after what's happened in my body? How can God be good after the childhood I had to endure? How could God be good with all those children suffering over there? How could God be good? But if you look at the object of your faith. And you remember, God doesn't answer all of His promises by next Tuesday. All of His promises are answered, yes, in Christ, but all of them are not answered this afternoon. They won't be answered by the end of April. And if you know to take a long view, if you know that somehow or another God is going to settle the score, He is going to reverse, in the same way He reversed Jesus' death to make it resurrection and life for the world, He's going to reverse your life. If you believe in Him, then you can wait. You can know that the promises have not fallen. You can also avoid over-expecting too much from the people around you. Because you know the paradise that is to come is not going to be experienced here. Some of you have longings. Keller put it this way, for families that you do not have. Now don't look to your left and right and say, you're right, well done. But man, some of you wished that family life had gone better. Some of you wished that your work was more satisfying. Some of you wished that things had gone better for you. If you realize that all these longings will be fulfilled, the guarantee is the resurrection of Christ. You don't have to have everything fulfilled now. You don't have to overexpect this month because you know you've got the rest of forever. And not living on some dang cloud with a harp and a diaper, like some cherub bodily. New heavens and new earth. Earth coming down. All things made new. Think physical. Think delight. Think things you love now somehow made better. Like Jesus' body. Which was identifiable but somehow better. We're a good newsing people who have been given a sturdy foundation an object to our faith that's better than the subject, we've been offered a deep forgiveness. And we've been offered a firm forever. And I'm concluding with this. One of our partners at Rock Creek, good friends of Hutch and Ashley's, and the girl, Maggie, was in the youth group that Kathy and I worked with when we were in seminary, and now she's instructing us. But we partner with them. They're church planning in southern India. And she wrote this yesterday. In the south of India, we have only seen two or three rainy days since Christmas. And we are desperate for the rain to come. 
Everything is parched, dusty, and hot. The arid breeze rustles the curtains and sends warm air circulating through the house, and I'm grateful for it, even though it is far from cool. Shops close in the afternoon hours, and power cuts are frequent. Old women crouch under the vegetable carts to find some patch, some small patch of shade to hide from the unforgiving South Asian sun. A film of dust and diesel exhaust covers every exposed thing in this land, even our house. Yet, for people who are good newsers, there's always a yet. The trees are in full bloom. Their arms are stretched upwards with vibrant greens, bright pinks, soft purples, and flaming yellows, crying glory to their creator. It's as if the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday lives in our midst. And while the people's mouths are silent and they worship unknown gods, the rocks and trees and all of creation cries out, to the one true God. We are a day, just a day after Good Friday, and only a day away from Easter. And this morning, our house helper, Indira, asked as we decorated the house for Easter, when will Easter come? And it struck me that she is one of over a billion people here who do not know the living God. Easter is here already. It means so much more when there are lifeless idols made of sand and stone and wood on every corner. The power of the living God is all the more intense when compared to these false gods made of earthly things in the image of earthly things. The people live in darkness. And she describes the darkness. Else why would a woman, pregnant, hurl herself down steps, try any means possible so that she would miscarry her baby just because the baby is a girl? In India, it is illegal to tell a woman the sex of her baby because so many girl babies are murdered here in favor of male children. In many circles, girls are an expense, a liability, a casualty for the family. But her mother is a Christian and she has taken this woman into her home to protect the unborn child. We hear stories like this all the time. We hear of slum women who douse their polyester saris with kerosene and light them on fire unable to cope with the desperation of their slum situations. We see humans treated like chattel. We see children no bigger than our girls begging, filthy, eyes glazed over from malnutrition of the body, mind, and heart. The darkness here is overwhelming at times. The reign of Christ is not apparent, she says. And as I try to bear up under it, I remember my precious Lord, who's stepping into the darkest of darkness, cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why? And I cry it too. And sometimes in the dark moments of my own helplessness and hopelessness, I wonder if the gospel, if the good newsing, will ever make an impression, if it will ever make even a slight dent on the surface of this place that is teeming with brokenness. And then, she says, and then I remember Easter. I remember why we are here. I remember why we are alive! Exclamation point. We breathe every breath in order to tell the world He lives. 
His death was not in vain. Redemption is happening even now. The crooked is being made straight. There is hope for the hopeless. Even for me, the saints are watching, witnessing, praying on our behalf. The Son is interceding. The Spirit is speaking. And the Father deigns to care and be present and never forsake us until His elect are saved to sin no more. Every night, our little girl Annie asks us to pray that she won't have bad dreams and ask God to hurry up and come so that it will never be nighttime again. And we pray it with hope and expectation. And we share the good news of captives to sin and death set free and we watch the flowers bloom even when there is no rain. Jonathan and Maggie are good newsing people. It's all you've got in a world filled with bad news is the reality of a Savior who will make all things new. He'll make the night go away and He'll dispel the gloom. And we are the people who carry that message. So believe it and act as if it's true. And good news for all the world to see for the poor, for the unforgiven, for the desperate, for the lonely, be good news because we have a Savior who is actively working to make all things new so that eventually, what Julian of Norwich said, all things will be well. All will be well and all manner of things will be well.